0: It's bonus day, bingers, and my guest today is a professional private investigator who has taken her work to the podcast world. She is the host of the amazing Without Warning podcast, where she shares her journey investigating the mysterious death of Lauren Aggie. Please welcome Sheila Wysocki. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Today, I am joined by the host of the Without Warning podcast, uh, which seems to be a minor part of your job description, Miss Sheila Wysocki. Uh Sheila, how are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thank you for asking me to be on here. I appreciate
0: it. It's my pleasure. And uh, we were just discussing off the air how a lot of us in this business don't have much time to listen to true crime podcasts because we're busy making true crime podcasts and doing other things. And one of the things that I've really loved about this season is as part of my job, I've had to block out time to listen to all these other podcasts and uh, some listeners had suggested without warning and wanted me to have you on. So I reached out to you and I've been doing some background listening to to your the first season of your podcast. and. And it's, it's really well done. It's really, really interesting. And uh, I couldn't wait to get you on the phone today because it will be just a minute before we get into the case. But what's interesting about your season one case is that the, it's the exact opposite of what we're typically doing, which is trying to battle against someone who got convicted who shouldn't have been, where in your case, you're working on a case where possibly someone didn't get convicted that should have been.
1: What I do is I look at investigations. So I take I want the listeners to know what victims families go through. So for instance in Lauren's case I wanted people to feel like they're part of the investigation from day one and what the family experienced and we're lucky that we had all the have years of audio and I also want tips and that's what happened with this case
0: yeah it's it's the crowdsourcing model and, and you know I've read on your your website how you know you have the approach similar to what we have where we take these investigations do what you know in the past was kind of a no-no by taking these investigations putting them out to the public and asking for help and it's it's working for you well
1: and isn't that interesting because I've Being an investigator and going to conferences, and I speak at conferences with investigators, it's not a popular way of doing investigations to this day. So it's kind of, you know, when I present it, it's it's kind of poo-pooed, but I am speaking to a lot of investigators that are former law enforcement, where you didn't bring the public in. And I am a firm believer in the public's help because I have about 200 volunteers, stable volunteers, that are with me on most of my cases. And they are brilliant. They're nurses and former district attorneys, and they're attorneys now and paralegals. And I am so lucky to have them look at the information. And I'll put out, hey, I need a statue or history on this, and I'll start getting all these people helping. And I have had criticism saying, well, they're doing all the work. Well, now, because of these people doing it, I have I have mentored about 19 females and one male. So, 20 PIs since I started my podcast are now trained in order to go forward the way I do things. And so think about how many families are now going to be helped because of that. And more on the way.
0: Right. And, you know, I've faced some of the similar criticism about, you know, well, everybody else is doing the work. But I just, in my opinion, it's, well, so what? The whole point is that we're trying to get to the truth. We're trying to help these families. And we're doing something very unique by bringing in you know as i always say you know it's you can never beat the power of of ordinary people all contributing you know whatever their skill set is to an investigation it is it's a it's a, a group of assets that most criminal or civil investigations have never seen you know no nobody goes into you know unless they're OJ Simpson with hundreds of people if not you know in our case thousands and even tens of thousands of people all working to try to find the truth. Usually you've got just, you know, right. a handful, a, an investigator, a lawyer, and that's it.
1: Right. And it's hard work.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, the, like you said, working with law enforcement, um, or former law enforcement, they're not too excited about the podcasting thing. It's, you know, Allison Clayton and I, who she's now the, I'm going to get her title wrong, vice president of the Innocence Project of Texas. She's gonna kill me if I get that wrong. She's like second. She's like the second big kahuna with the Innocence Project of <laughs> Texas now. <laughs> but you know when I when I first started working with her, or Mike, Ware, us, you know, I, I took a case to him at h case, and you know, got him all the documents. He decided to take it and assigned Allison to it, and she was. This was back in twenty sixteen, and she was so mad mm. that she had to work with the podcaster because you don't talk to the media, and how dare mm-hmm. he stick with the media and. Oh, yeah, and, and over the years, like now, a lot of the cases I get, she's constantly bringing me oh. more cases she wants help on because she's realized the power of this crowdsourcing model.
1: Oh, it's fantastic. It is so good that, first of all, I, I, have, um, I do work weekends, so I have people, I know it's COVID time, everybody's tested, nobody has COVID, but we come together, stay together, and work cases together. And so I have people here, as we're speaking, working on cases downstairs. And so I am getting a... We have poster boards out, we're writing things, and we're comparing notes. And they can, you know, a couple of them are paralegals and uh, nurses down there and, you know, just moms, volunteers. And the things that we've gotten on this case that we just started, you can't even believe how many hours has gone into it with just us. And I work with an attorney out of Texas, and so I called him yesterday and, and talking to him today, and just running through what are the laws, you know, what what rights does this family have to the case file? And that's our big thing, is we're trying to figure out how to get case files after 25, 30, you know, 20 years, the police saying it's open but not active and more and more families are starting to sue the police department for the records
0: right and and i'm sure right now i'm assuming you're running into the same issue that i'm running into specifically in texas in that on top of that challenge even if they grant you access to it there's nobody in the records divisions right now during the the pandemic and you still can't get the files
1: exactly exactly but here's the good thing we we don't we need to get it through the first phase. Once that happens, then the second phase of get, gaining access uh, will help. But you're right. You know, and I'm, that's not my only case. I've got, I'm juggling several cases. So doing record, you know, FOIAs, you know, in Kentucky and Mississippi and Oklahoma and stuff has been really interesting. It depends on the jurisdiction. Now, What's really funny to me about what we do is the lack of knowledge on FOIAs. So a sheriff does not know they're obligated to turn over things. And that's been an an education in itself, you know, going through things. Well, here's the law. It says you have to do this. (laughs) So I am dealing with city council members now and the mayor now trying to educate somebody who's in that position.
0: Yeah, I went through something similar years ago when I started in uh, Smith County, Texas, where the sheriff there told me, "Well, we're not giving you any of that, and we don't have any of that." And I had to be like, "Well, here's the law that says you have to retain it, and here's the law that says you have to give it to me." And, and then you know they cooperated after that. But it was—I always wondered—did sure. well, they legitimately not know that? That seems impossible. Or did they, or were they—they they trying to pull a fast one? Either way, yeah, they—they they tend to spend a lot of time playing games, you know one thing I want to, I want to touch on be, before we get to the case is, what is your background? How did you, you know, I, I listened to in the Without Warning podcast in season one, I listened to the the audio of the judge's ruling where oh, that's great. the very disrespectful judge that was kind of ripping you and saying what kind of credentials you don't have, which by the way spoiler, was later, uh, that decision was overturned by another judge, but it got, it got me to thinking because I, I thought I me- he mentioned that you didn't have law enforcement background. How did did you, what is your background and how did you become a private investigator?
1: Yeah, so that's the interesting twist in the story. So we'll talk about that. But I became a private investigator because my college roommate was brutally raped and brutally murdered. And that was in the 80s. And then in 2010, well, 2000, early 2000s, 2003. I became a private investigator in order to solve that case because nobody was working the case. And so 2010, he got the death penalty. We're in uh, the appeals process right now, but he is on death row. He was a serial rapist. It was a one in a trillion something that his DNA did not match. It matched perfectly. And Did I say that right? His DNA matched. It would have been, you know, one in a trillion that it didn't. Right. So, anyway, he is off the streets, which is the whole reason, plus now we know what happened. And I was going to retire my license, and my training, just to give you my training, I worked with a Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective who worked 600 homicides, and he himself is responsible for 400 of them being caught, and then a Detroit, Michigan police officer, and then I also, you know, took classes and stuff like that. Then after the trial, I was going to retire my license, and then, you know, Dateline and a local station did a story on it, and I started getting mail, and this is how stupid I was. I was getting mail at our our former house, and I was like, "How did I know where I live?" <laughs> so, not really smart about that, the privacy aspect. Um, but I'm pretty, you know, I'm I'm out there. So people, you know, if, they, if families need to find me, they're going to find me. And so I started calling people because what I found was now I only work. I know you work the Innocent Project, and I believe in that. But nobody does what I'm doing because. There are a lot of pro- innocent projects and groups working on that, but nobody's working for these families. And there are 277,000 unsolved cases. That's where I'm working, mm-hmm. and so I started calling these people and listening to what they were saying. And what I found it's so similar to what I experienced, and that's where that's where I focused, and that's my niche. and I am not. I don't take every case obviously that comes my way. I have to feel that it can be solved, and that I can work with the families.
0: So that's it's interesting you you went that route, and I and and I commend you for doing it. I have a lot of people will and you know, will will pitch cases like that to me, and will you cover this unsolved case? And one, it's just you know it's just not what I have dedicated my work to. But then the other challenge is. That you have to face all the time is, at least with a wrongful conviction, the case is closed, and access to the records becomes relatively easy compared to sometimes trying to get access to records in a case that is technically still open because right. the the police, you know, you you worked in the the Christian Andriacchio case, the the culpable podcast case, and we had Ray on the show a few months ago. And that was one of the deals with that case, right? It was, it was you guys were fighting with the district attorney's office and the police agencies to try to get case files that they didn't want to release to you and they under right. the under the guise of well, the case is open, so you can't have it, even though they're not investigating it right
1: <laughs> exactly. So a lot of my cases are called open but not active, meaning it's on the shelf. no one's looking at it, and no one's working it. But that is a way to... This is my big thing. That is a way to control the family. And that is a way to, if there were any mistakes, to hide the mistakes. And I have numerous cases like that. So what I do, I take everything that the parents have and look it over, and then I start from scratch. The great thing about the training I did receive was I learned how to do an investigation? Truly do an investigation. So you start from scratch as if you have no information. You interview people. You go. You would not believe what people will say. And a lot of times, when you go to talk to people, they're like, uh, "You'll say to them, well, why didn't you come forward?'" And they'll say, "Well, no one asked me."
0: Right. We get that all the time too. It's it, it's it's stunning sometimes. How people, when you start the investigation from the beginning, and you realize this is a key, important person in the investigation, and we go knock on their door, and they're like, I don't know, police never asked me anything.
1: Right. That's what, and you know, we're doing, so to give you an example right now, we're doing a case, and we're only on, you know, day one of identifying all the people. We're at 70 people. Now, a police department, they're not going to contact 70 people. You know what we're going to do? Contact 70 people. And that's just the beginning of it. There's more. you know, And then we break down every single thing we know. If it's a, like in the Andreakio case, there was a lot of information because Ray is so smart and so organized, and she knew it from the beginning. And that's the great thing about the families I work with, as in Lauren's case. Sherry knew from day one something wasn't right. And so she kept records. That's what generally happens in the cases I get. And my families that I work with, they all have fantastic records. Now, are they always 100% accurate? Of course not. But we're able to tease through it.
0: Right. So I guess that's a good transition point into getting into Lauren's case, which is the subject of season one of your podcast. Uh, Can we first just go through? Just kind of the the basic storyline of what was known on day one before Sherry became suspicious. Sherry is Lauren's mother and started the investigation. What what happened? It's it's two thousand fifteen, July. There's this festival uh on Center right. Center Hill Lake called Wake Fest. Lauren goes up there with some friends. So what happened or what was the original story about what happened?
1: The original story: where two fishermen found a body floating, and they called it in. It was July 26th at 4:30 in the afternoon, and it looked like a drowning, quote unquote, according to the witness. Now, luckily, that was the dad. That was the father-son. That was the dad saying it looked like a drowning. He didn't know anything, but the son was an EMT, and he's like, that's not a drowning. She's floating. And so they went, called the police, police arrived, and, you know, Lauren had gone to Wakefest with a girlfriend of hers and met up with these three guys on top of the cliff. Well, Nothing unusual about that. The cliff is very steep, but when she was found, they said she fell off the cliff, she drowned, and she was drunk. What's accurate about that statement is she was found at the bottom of the cliff. By forensics and science, it does not take a genius to look at her body and what's on her body and see that... She did not roll down that cliff or fall down that cliff. She didn't. So when I take cases, I do reenactments. And the first reenactment we did was take a dummy. And I think our dummy weighed 110. She was 118 pounds. And we consistently threw it off. I didn't, by the way. Let me clarify this. A a police officer uh, who threw it off. And then I went back with an EMT and we did the same thing. And we consistently drew the dummy off to see how far it would go. And kind of, you know, we tried all the areas we were told that she went to go pee, this, this, uh, anything that somebody told us, we marked it off my list. Mm -hmm. And she never would make it down to the water. What was interesting about that. The police officer was there when, it happened, when they found Lauren's body. So he was a great eyewitness, fantastic, actually. And another police officer who was there at the time, both of them were great eyewitnesses. And they were doing the right thing. What's amazing to me is these police officers like that that do the right thing, they have to leave the organization or find new jobs because they become pariahs because they're helping the families or they're helping me. One of them was told his career was over.
0: Right, and you know, and the I know the DeKalb County Sheriff was really unhappy from the beginning about really any of the media coverage. Right, right, yeah. And so anybody that was that was participating in that was. Um, are, are you talking about Chris uh, Yarchuk? Was he Yarchuk. the? Yeah, the, he's
1: a hero. Yeah, he's a hero, and Ryan Melanson,
0: another hero. Right. So, the, you know, the, uh, originally the originally we only had three people. There was Hannah Palmer, who was Lauren's friend, her boyfriend Aaron Lilly, and his friend Chris Stout, along with Lauren, are camping on this cliff. And they say they get up in the morning and they can't find Lauren. They don't know where she's at. Right. And so they go about their business. Few hours later, her body's found, and they're saying, "Well, uh, she must have got up to go pee and fell down." You know, and, and the other thing, if I understand right, that was that was accurate about their story was, didn't the the me determine that she she did have enough alcohol in her system? She was somewhere around two times the the legal limit of alcohol, so she had been drinking that night.
1: Yeah, but I'm going to give you, and I'm not going to get into the science of this because we are kind of holding some stuff back, but. That may be disputed later, a little bit. But she was drunk, yes. I'm right. not to dispute. She was drunk. Sure. The limits we'll talk
0: about. Okay. So her, her body's found. They happen to be, or at least a couple of them happen to be, right there near where her body's found, when it's found, which was, which was a little odd, because it was kind of mm-hmm. away from the where the actual festival was happening. And then very quickly, the police look into it. They do an autopsy and determine... Well, it was a, it was a tragic accident and that was it. and and Sherry or uh, Lauren's mother Sherry, she never she never bought that story.
1: No. No. and it just if there were too many things, so Sherry you know, started writing things down that people were telling her, talking to people and you know there were things that weren't consistent. And when she talked to Jeremy Taylor, the police officer or detective for DeKalb County, she would say, you told me, see, police will say to families, tell us everything or anything that comes your way that would help. So Sherry would call him. She was smart enough to start recording those phone calls. And, you know, we played a couple of them on the podcast. There are more phone calls and stuff. But People can get an idea of, he'd say, oh, I'm going to call that person and never follows up. So I went back through and interviewed all these witnesses and to so the, the story that was put out in the press, oh, she's drunk and she fell off the cliff, is a little bit different when you start talking to the witnesses and what actually happened and who she was with. They kept trying, I call it the, the other guy did it story. And they kept saying things like, well, the other guy did it, which was her ex-boyfriend. And so the good thing about that is he was around 20-plus people and adults who don't have a dog in the hunt. You go talk to them, they don't care if he was with her or not. Mm -hmm. And consistently, he wasn't with her, didn't even talk to her. And so the story of, oh, she was talking to her ex-boyfriend, she was jealous. All of that started falling apart, and then uh, one of the stories was she went to a houseboat with a bunch of guys. We have really good, solid witnesses of people that don't have anything to do with DeKalb County or Lauren or the campers. And so those witnesses, their stories are all consistent, and they don't even know each other.
0: Right. And that was, so what was it when you started looking through the case file that, because I'm sure you're like me, you get tons of case submissions all the time, people for asking for help. And there's got to be something that makes you say, okay, you know, this one, I think I'm going to take, I think there's something here. What was it about this case originally that that got you interested enough to continue the investigation?
1: So I actually was, um, working on another case in Texas. And I had, I, at that point, I, w- I only did one case at a time. And my I had a friend who called me on, this, on Sherry's case and said, please, I'm begging you, just talk to the mom. That's what always gets me. Mm-hmm. So that's where I get in trouble. And when I talk to Sherry, so there is a desperation, and I know you know this, you've talked to enough families. In the voice of a mother. And it's for whatever reason, I'm like, first of all, I, I'm not going to take it if I don't think I can resolve it somehow. And resolving it to me is different than I'm not an attorney. I can only do what I can do. I can tell you what happened, but I can't arrest the people and I can't force law enforcement to do their job. But we can at least find out what happened that night. And in her case, there were several things. Um, The investigation was, there was no investigation. And we know for a fact there was no investigation because they have been deposed. And there's no investigation. So, you know, they deserved an investigation. And, you know, Sherry is a very strong-willed, probably like Warren, determined mom and those are the moms that I work with and I will say to them this is a long haul people are going to be horrible to you you will get social media where people say things that are awful can you take it and if I find out Lauren fell off the cliff and was drunk are you going to be able to handle it those are the things I have a list of rules they have to follow if they don't I I mean literally I'll I'll cut them off and move on. And I'm really clear about that.
0: So I assume she agreed to all these terms. Oh, of course. And and brings you on. Was the podcast a part of that conversation or did the (laughs) idea to bring it to the podcast happen later?
1: So this is so funny. Um, We were running into, you know, we experienced the judge and, I'm like, man, oh, man, you're not going to get anything with this this dude. So I was talking to my youngest, and he said, Mom, you ought to do a podcast. And I go, what's a podcast? And he explained what a podcast was. I had an intern at that time. She did the research. And I said to Sherry, I go, we are going to do this podcast thing. We're going to drop it on July 26th at 430 when they found Lauren's body. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds great, but you and I both know now (laughs) podcasting's hard.
0: Right, yeah. it
1: takes a lot of time. It's not, hey, let me get behind the mic. It's editing, music, all that. And I am dyslexic, so it is painful for people to listen to me read. I know it. It's painful for me to read. So it had to be... I had to have some help, and I was lucky to have some people that I knew from New York that helped me, Katie Smith. And so I was able to kind of get that help. And then I flew up to Podcast Movement. So, two days before the podcast dropped, I'm going down the vendor aisles and I went to Resonate Recording. I'm like, I have this podcast. It needs to drop this time. It's not ready. What do I do? They were fantastic. And do you know, they got it. I got on the plane to go back home, and they dropped it at 4.30 on July 26th. When I landed, I had my first phone call from a witness that I had been trying to get. And I called Sherry. I was crying. Wow. She started crying. And he and I met, and I got what I needed. That was the first tip that came in, and then they started coming in from there.
0: That's great. And, and so Sherry had no problem, obviously, with you making all this public on the podcast.
1: Oh, no. I don't do very, I want to be very clear. Nothing I do is, is done without the permission of family, because that's it's their case, not my case. And it's their child, not my child. And so anything that is done or shown or talked about is approved by families.
0: So can you share what was that first tip that came in once you started sharing the the podcast right after it launched?
1: Sure. It was a young man who was on the cliff with Aaron Lilly and Bricks and who else was up there? Hannah, and they were jumping off the cliff. That's what the, the original thing Jeremy Taylor said. She jumped off the cliff and hit her head.
0: And Jeremy Taylor was the detective for DeKalb County, right?
1: Right. He yeah. was the detective who met Sherry at the hospital. And his story to Sherry was she was jumping off the cliff, hit her head, and that's how she died. This young man said no. She jumped off the cliff, got up, And, you know, went to Wakefest, and she was fine. So that kind of, you
0: know, put that aside. And that's not how she died. Right. Well, and I want to touch on, too, you mentioned the name Bricks. That was another, for the first part of the investigation, it was just Hannah, Aaron, and Chris. And then was it when the episode was on Dateline or 2020 where we find out that there was a fourth person with them?
1: Yes. So it went on 2020. And that next day, I had a voicemail from, I call them the boat people, and I met with them, it was on April 14th, and then I met with them right after, I think on the 17th, and we went over every person that was up on the cliff. And I'm going to tell you as an investigator, I'm surprised a lot of what happened. That was one of those things knocked me over that bricks was on top of that cliff because his alibi was completely different
0: well, and he was he was never mentioned right I understand that right, but Hannah, Aaron and Chris, in all their statements, they never mentioned that this guy was even there
1: exactly. Why would you not mention that
0: yeah that you know when I was mentioned earlier, like what red flags were there that made you go decide to take the case you know that was as I was listening, you know, there, there was a couple things. One, when everybody has this story about the ex-boyfriend. Clint was his name. Was that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, my guy.
0: Yeah. So they're all saying, well, she was with Clint. She was with Clint. They had this argument with Clint. And then you look and see, you know, you know, there's dozens of witnesses that say that's not true. That would be a big red flag to me. Like, why are they all saying something that's provably false? And then the other one was this bricks. Like, why are why is there a person that was clearly there completely left out of their narrative?
1: And there's audio of him. So when you go back through the audio and you're identifying the voices. As a, and when I got the audio, I went through and listened to the tapes. And, you know, you do statement analysis. You know, who's saying what, what you know, what verbs and nouns and all that stuff you do. And then um, you break it down so there's, like, a chart. And then there's a voice on there. And I called Sherry, and I was like, who's this voice? So we kept listening and listening. And she said, that sounds like Brit. And I said, well, was he there? He was supposed to be with those two girls in the car, you know. And the two girls in the car would never, they avoided subpoenas. They, They never would talk.
0: So who were who were these two girls in the? What do you mean by two girls in the car? Where were these girls at?
1: His alibi was he was not on the cliff that night. He was in a car with these two girls, and we have their names. And they were part of the you know the legal system, and they avoided. I I don't serve subpoenas, the but they avoided them. We never got served. Never talked. Um, we went to their businesses. They never spoke. You know they know that there are subpoenas for them to talk. Why would, why would you avoid just talk? Just tell someone what you know.
0: Well, and yeah, and the entirety of their involvement in the case is simply that Brick says I was with them. Right. And they refuse to talk to anybody about that? Yes. Yeah, that's uh I, w- I would call that another Another red flag.
1: Red flag. <laughs> mm-hmm. I call that a red flag
0: too. Yeah. So, so the these red flags we will call them start to mount up. Where you have now, you know, everybody's telling a story that is provably false. There's a guy there that, which with getting back to bricks, so through these other the boat people and and other witnesses, are you are you confident that he was in fact there? Did he ever admit to being there?
1: Oh, I'm I'm very confident he was there because I have now not only the boat people, like I said, I have other witnesses that have nothing to do with the families or the campers that have put him up there too. So I'm very confident he was up there.
0: So you've got a you've got a guy that was there that's saying he's not there, and then you know these
1: and we have audio of them
0: being there. What is that audio? Is, is that from social media posts, or is that from police no, interviews? No,
1: it's some police interviews and also just different audio. So we have, oh my gosh, Bob, I've got so much audio on this case that will, I, I don't know if it'll ever be aired, but it, it's, there's a lot. I only did the podcast stuff it's you know, 30 minutes at a time, so um, there's a lot left on the table. And so we have more audio of him, plus we have audio of Aaron talking about him being up there, and you asked what the red flag was for me taking the case, and the red flag why I took the case, Sherry had audio of Hannah and another friend that was turned over by the other friend, and... There were things, again, going back to statement analysis, there were things said in that audio that just made me stop and think, okay, Sherry's got something here. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really sticks out, Lauren's shoes were pictured on one side of the campsite. There are actually two campsites. Thank God for Chris Yarchuk because he was able to take me and show me. So the campsite that the shoes were pictured at wasn't where the shoes were when he, Chris Yarchuk, went up to get the ID of the person floating in Center Hill. So when Chris Yarchuk saw the pictures, he said those shoes were underneath the chair on the other side where her jacket was. And her jacket was hanging there. Now, Sherry's never gotten any of that stuff back. None of it. Police don't have it. There is rumors. I never could. I talked to one guy, but I I like to have three. I had talked to one guy who said there was a fire on top of that cliff that night. I don't know. We have one witness. Not sure if that's true or not. But none of uh, Lauren's stuff came back other than the purse and a couple of other items the police took. When I talked to Chris Yarchak about the shoes, and he said they weren't there, they've been moved, and then I listened to the tape of Hannah and this other friend. Hannah said in that tape, we spent 45 minutes, I think it's 45 minutes, looking for worn shoes. She wouldn't go anywhere without her shoes. And then later, they're saying, well, she walked to the pee area without her shoes? And there, you know, there were several other things like that. And, you know, Lauren, from I do a profile in the background on the victim. Lauren was a girly girl. She was a tough girl, but she was a girly girl. She would have her shoes on. She wasn't like a rough and tumble tomboy. She was going to have her shoes on. And that area was very rocky. I mean, you'd have... Cuts. I mean, just going up there and slipping. I had, you know, little cuts here and there. I
0: was, I was going to ask: with the did, did the medical examiner's report? Did, were there any photos, or did it did it discuss the bottom of her feet? I mean, they should be able to tell if she had been walking around barefoot.
1: So the medical examiner in Nashville, you know, he is who he is. From what I understand, from a former police officer who is on the record on the podcast, whatever the police say is what they'll write down. And there are are people that have gotten laws changed recently in Nashville because it was so bad. Now you can dispute what the medical examiner says because it was so many suicide, suicide, suicide. So Lauren's body, her physical body, we have the pictures from the autopsy, we have the pictures from the crime scene. And it does not match the environment she was in
0: so l- let's get into what evidence other than you know the stuff we're talking about is, is is suspicious the stories aren't lining up and and you did your your reenactment yeah you know where you 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 tried at several different points from the cliff to see you know could she have sustained the injury she had if she fell from here
1: and fallen into the lake.
0: Right. So what evidence, because there's actually physical evidence that you have found on her body that maybe wasn't noted by the medical examiner, the original medical examiner, that indicates that this could have been a homicide. What were those things?
1: First of all, they ruled it as accidental and possible drowning. So you don't have water in your lungs possible drowning. Mm, Okay. She was floating, so she didn't drown. There were some bruising, so on her neck. There is some bruising, just a little bit, like if you're holding somebody down. It wasn't choking, so I want to be clear about that. She also had, her nose was broken. That was not um, noted on the medical examiner's report. There was also a bite mark, that was not noted or even discussed, you know. And again, you and I both know in court, you can't bring a bite mark in anymore.
0: Right. So whether or
1: not it, right. And my job is not to bring it to court. It's to inform the attorney. This is what we believe. This is a uh, dentist who believes this to be true and correct. They have to decide if it goes in front of a judge, not me. Mm-hmm. So we've got the bite mark, and I will tell you the where the bite mark is is so significant because Lauren was taught how to fight, and it's really interesting talking to her friends on how she would fight somebody. And she would wrap her legs around someone's waist and their her arms around their neck. Well, where do you think someone's going to bite her? Exactly where she was bit.
0: And that was on her chest, right?
1: On her chest, right on her breast. And she died of blood force trauma from her the back of her head. So you've got the nose, you've got the neck, the nose broke the neck has some sort of, you know, indication someone held her down. And then her body though, this is I think the most significant, is pretty clean from falling down a cliff. You don't have dirt on your pants. Your shorts are pretty clean and you no scratching, maybe one little mark here and there. Her feet are clean. You know, overall, it doesn't look like a fall or even rolling down a cliff. Uh, she would have twigs and hair, you know, stuff in her hair, none of that, no dirt, Her fingernails were broken. She did have a tampon in, and I think this is very significant. So we called her OBGYN, or I guess GYN at that age. Mm -hmm. And she, if you look at the medical report, again, I'm not a doctor. However, it was explained to me that she was not on her period, but she did have a tampon in her. They did not do a rape kit because in the state of Tennessee, in order to do a rape kit, the officer has to, the detective has to ask for it. Jeremy Taylor is the detective. He told the fathers, the father and stepfather, well, she wasn't raped because she was on her period. How did he know that? There was no blood on that tampon. How did he know that?
0: And, and this is, was that at least after the autopsy? I mean, did, how did he even know the tampon was there?
1: Oh, there was a tampon.
0: No, but I mean, did, so but he told them that after the autopsy, once her body had been examined, at least, right? So he knew he did know there was a tampon there?
1: Oh, he did know there was a tampon there, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think it was, mm, it was after, I have to think, when he did. It was after the autopsy. Mm-hmm. But he knew there was a tampon there. He examined her at the hospital when she was brought there,
0: and so and so he tells that, that rapes out of the question because she's on her period. But you're saying that maybe, perhaps she wasn't wasn't on actually on her period.
1: I'm saying that the doctor we spoke to said she was not on her period. Jeremy Taylor said she was because she had a tampon in, and. Evidently, in the South, in Tennessee,
0: you can't be raped with a tampon in, but they didn't ah. do a rape kit. Right. you know. There's so much they didn't do. I mean, that's the rape kit is is obviously a big one, but, but what really got me, if I under, if I understand the case correctly, is you know, they said they had she had broken fingernails. Certainly, there's at least from the family a suspicion of an assault and murder. And they never took any swabs or any samples for DNA testing from her fingernails. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. To, to me, that's even more egregious than the than the rape kit. I mean, that's not difficult to do. And certainly, if she was in a fight like that, the, the kill. If that's what happened, the killer's DNA sh- surely should be under her fingernails.
1: They didn't do it.
0: Is there, was was anything even, I know they didn't do any testing, but did they even collect anything? Is there anything that could be tested later, or was that just not done at all, and it's too late now?
1: It's pretty much the way things go here. It's pretty much too late.
0: God, it's tragic. There's so many, so much evidence that indicates that that she was murdered. Now, I will say, you know, from only my cursory knowledge of the case, from listening to the podcast and a little bit of reading, I can't say for sure she was murdered. Could have been some sort of accident. You need
1: to investigate it. You need to give this family a shot
0: at law enforcement, right? And and that's that's the frustrating part is you know what's being done now, which is essentially nothing, and and more so what should have been done at the time that the, the fact the family was ignored, the the jump to conclusions that the police officers made, and this is there. How many total episodes did you have on season one? I think I think as of right think, now I'm in the twenties. <laughs>
1: 30. And, you know, I could have gone on and on, but I thought, you know, I a couple of things. is he... The case is where it was. I've done everything I can for the family, and my job, I always try to keep in mind what my job is. My job is to call Sherry, sit down with her, and tell her what happened to her daughter that night. That's, that's, that is my job, and that's what has been done.
0: So what is your opinion of what happened that night?
1: Well, it's up to Sherry to give details, but I will tell you what I'm, I'll just tell you. Lauren did not die because she was drunk and fell off the cliff. Lauren died because she was assaulted.
0: And
1: we have really good indication of who, what, and how. I'm hoping that the feds have stepped in and that they are doing their job.
0: So where does the case stand now? I know in, in 2016, uh, Sherry filed a wrongful death suit. One judge threw it out. And then, what was it, just last year in 2019, there was a new judge's ruling that that overturned that, which is going to allow them to move forward with the wrongful uh, the wrongful death lawsuit. Um, that's all I know as far as where things are at. So can you, can you, can you sure. as we're wrapping things up, can you explain you know, where things are at now and and what maybe we can expect in the future?
1: Okay, so the judge Jonathan Young is who threw it out. Was horrible to Sherry in court. Of course, he trashed me, which still makes me laugh. And he threw it out, and then the appellate court came and stomped all over him. I've never seen a ruling like I've seen in that. And they stomped on him, telling him, you know, all the areas that he was wrong. But then it throws it back into his court. So Sherry had to make a decision. And one thing that happened during that period was Judge Jonathan Young reached out to Sherry's youngest daughter, her stepdaughter, and made a friend request. That doesn't seem like a huge deal, but Sherry's in his court. Well, as it turns out, Judge Jonathan Young would do that in his court and just got reprimanded by the Judiciary Committee in Tennessee. He got a slap on the wrist and for not only that but also opening his robe and taking pictures of things that were unsolicited and sending it to females. so he's a he's a character and a half and sherry, And I talked about it, and her uh, husband, Mike, he's fantastic. And, you know, it scared Sherry to death, to be honest. And so between that and a few other things, she's like, "I'm, I'm done. I know what happened to Lauren. I'm done. And the federal entities, as I understand it, were looking at the case. I don't know where it is there. But hopefully they are looking at it, to look at what the judge did and how she was treated in court and how many women have been affected by that, and also the investigation and Sheriff Ray. So hopefully it'll be uh, a case that comes to a conclusion. But for Sherry and her family, they know what happened.
0: Well, that is as tragic as this whole case is. At least they have that, and, and you delivered for them what you had promised. So for people who want all of the, the, the full details of the case, including some some fantastic original audio from police interviews, from courtrooms, depositions, uh, check out Without Warning Season 1. Uh, and it was Season 2 you covered the Andriacchio case, right?
1: I did. Yeah. I did.
0: Um, and so that's another great one to check out. I haven't listened to to your podcast on that yet. It's on my list. Um, familiar with the case, obviously, talked to Ray, and then you also have a season three, is that right?
1: I do. I do. It's my COVID case. And um, this mom I talked to before we went on lockdown, and I said, I'll do one episode on your case for her daughter, Katie. And it is, Katie was pregnant, and her uh, two-year-old child, River, were all found in really unbelievable circumstances. And so this is the, that's the case I just did solely without going up. I like to go up and test theories, but we have made unbelievable strides in that case, and that one's not over by any means. So we'll get some resolution on that.
0: That's great. So make sure you check out, without warning, uh, all three seasons. Uh, I, can, I can certainly vouch for season one. It's, it's a riveting piece of investigative work. And Sheila, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, and we'll probably circle back to you again after I get through these other seasons.
1: Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking to me. You have no idea.
0: you welcome.